This audio is brought to you by Muslim Central. Please consider donating to help cover our running costs and future projects by visiting www.muslimcentral.com forward slash donate. Inna alhamdulillah hamdan kathiran tayyiban mubarakan fi. Alhamdulillah wa kafa wa salatu wa salam wa ala ashraf al-anbiya sallallahu alayhi wa salam wa ala alihi wa ashabihi wa azwaji wa manwala wa ba'd. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Dear brothers and sisters in Islam, this is your brother Sheikh Khalid Yassin speaking to you from Philadelphia. This is a Facebook Live uh, presentation, and the title of our program is Islam, America, and the World. We will be attempting to broadcast to you, uh, to the world, to all of America, uh, every Saturday. Uh, between one and two o'clock. We try to start at one, but usually maybe between one and two. So just um, be on board with us around one o'clock and we will get started between one, one thirty, one forty-five, depending upon the actual circumstances and technology and where we happen to be located. Uh, nevertheless, this is our second broadcast and uh, I hope that you joined us or that you were able to view uh, the archived program that we did last Saturday. Now, uh, last Saturday, we covered a number of um, questions. Uh, we covered the general topic. Um, so this week, what we'll do is we'll be addressing some additional questions because this is a very wide topic. And we should probably let you know that this is not a topic that can be completed in a session or one or two or three sessions uh, because Islam uh, in America itself, the dynamics of it spreads maybe a hundred years. Um, and Islam is a actual movement, a consolidation uh, and a da'wah platform and uh, sort of like um, a sophisticated uh, uh, movement here in the United States is maybe around 50 years. So what we will be trying to do here in Islam American world is not tell the historical story, but we'll be trying to address issues that are relevant to the topic. And I want to remind my viewers, you know, that we could talk about a lot of things. And uh, Sheikh Khalid Yassin has spoken about a number of subjects over the last 50 years. But today we are talking about Islam, America and the world. Uh, having said that, um, we have in our studio um, uh, two very competent young people, uh, Brother Abdullah and Sister Naima, and they will be posing some questions themselves and also uh, as questions come up from you, our audience, they'll be posing those questions to me. And this is sort of the uh, structure that we're going to be using. Uh, I will do my best to fill in the gaps, respond to the relevant issues, try to answer for about an hour. If we really have a motivated audience, we'll be on now. And I want you to be patient with us. Uh, because we are doing this here straightforward on Facebook Live. So this is not like a setup uh, in a studio. We're coming to you from the home 
um, of the Abdullah family here in Philadelphia, who has so great to use their home to make this presentation. Uh, so I want to go to Brother to give on the topic that we're going to be discussing. Mm -hmm. Thank you very much, Sheikh. Thank you for taking the time to sit down with us for these interviews. Thank you for taking the time for all of your supporters, your family, your friends, everybody out there online. Um, it's wonderful that you take the time out of your busy schedule in order to share your thoughts, insights, experiences with all of us out here. Um, it's very much appreciated. So thank you, Sheikh. And we're speaking on the topic of Islam, America, and the world. And the Sheikh, mashallah, has more than 50 years of experience as a Muslim, um, being born and raised here in America, and more than 50 years as a Muslim in this country after converting from Christianity to Islam. Um, so I think it's very valuable to hear your thoughts and insight into how Americans can relate to Islam and how Islam and Muslims can relate to America. So I think we'll be talking more about that today. Um, and just getting right into the line of questions, over the past few days, well, a couple of days ago, there was a mass shooting in a school down in Florida. 17 people were killed, just innocent people. Um, so just what are your thoughts on this atrocity and just the, I mean, I grew up with Columbine when I was in school, but it seems like it's becoming more common for Americans to witness such tragedies. Well, of course, um, tragedy, tragic is probably even not the word anymore. It's probably like horrendous um, trauma. And I think my reflection is, is, is on the, the immorality of it, uh, the senselessness of it, uh, and that it seems now to be embedded into the American culture or let's put it this way, maybe it's not the American culture, let's call it the American subculture. Now, <clears throat> the subculture of America has breeded a lot of different um, strange nuances um, that produced similar kinds of acts. Um, we don't need to enumerate them here, but we can just look through the history of America, even going back 100 years and see that uh, America has is a breeding ground for this kind of subculture of uh, unsubstantiated, unwarranted, uh, just um, um, slaughter, uh, hatred, um, um, <clears throat> taking lives um, without any kind of sensitivity, uh, as if as if it's some kind of a sport. You know the arrested, that he wanted to be, or not when he was arrested, even before he was arrested, he told the police even beforehand that he wanted to be a professional school shooter. Now, what does that mean? So he must have watched Columbine and other things that happened 
and he wanted to take it to to be you get you get some kind of remuneration, some kind of reward, you get some kind of social status, uh, and you do it in a very refined, calculated way. Now that's what I understand about being professional. Now, what kind of message is he sending on to other young people who are unstable, who are eating, feeding off of this same subculture? Uh, to cre create or to commit similar types of acts. And another thing comes to my mind that the press seems to be handling these kinds of events in a very um, subjective way. You know, if a black man uh, commits a crime against one person without a sophisticated weapon, not in a school, but just arbitrarily, on a train or a bus or a train or somewhere, just an argument. And that that black man's face would be posted on all newspapers. It would be news for What if he announced himself or he had some connection to Islam? He had a his name was Abdullah or his name was Abdul Rashid or something. Then what would have, what, how would the press would have treated it? What we can just go back in the last year and we'll see that when such actions, criminal actions, horrendous actions were done by persons claiming to be Muslims or people who were categorized as Muslims, this was news on every channel for four or five days, maybe one week talking about Islam, uh, fundamentalism, extremism, uh, radicalism, and, and uh, from ISIS or Kaiser. He's a unstable. Now, I think that's very unfair. This also feeds into the subculture. Um, and so I think it not only is it unfair and unethical, but it is also immoral for the media to treat it that way. And this is why we come to understand that Muslims themselves, the family of Muslims, the friends of Muslims, and American Muslims themselves need to understand of actions, whether they are performed by Muslims or not. Uh, the internet connection. Okay, go ahead. So let's just rehearse for a moment because we had a little short glitch there. Um, it seems that uh, there's a need for things to take place and, uh, um, and for the creation of some kind of a false flag situation where maybe Muslims are not even involved or connected at all, but that they will be somehow placed in the middle, implicated in some emotionally, we will be framed. Once we are constitutionally as like enemies of the state, all of us, whether we had something to do with that or not, even if we are very good Americans, even if we perform as Americans, we vote, we, um, we participate, we pay our taxes, we, we are good to our neighbors, we send our children to school, we involve ourselves in building and refining the society, we do all the things that 
American citizens are supposed to do. But because of this climate of hate, which seems to be very much cultivated from the White House. Now, this is a point that we need to know that this is a little bit unprecedented. Uh, in my lifetime, I've never known this kind of a climate of hatred to be. I mean, this was the this, that Mr. Trump had during his campaign and that he's perpetuating. And it seems like a locomotive that has no brakes whatsoever. And that he sort of changed the image that their neighbors, their friends have for them to try to, I think, demonize Islam even further than what it has been demonized. Uh, that's my uh, response to that. Now, of course, my heart and the heart of all Muslims in this society who are decent Americans and decent human beings, our hearts and uh, go out and we grieve along with the people whose families and loved ones uh, were killed in this kind of an incident. Um, and um, what, along with the, the tragedy, the horrendous tragedy that it represents, I also think that it seems to set the stage for something far worse. How so? How does it for something? Well, what do you think would happen if an action like that is done or framed or perceived to have been done by Muslims? Uh, and what if these kind of actions seem to be taking place every day of like they are planned. What in terms of the sensitivities of the average American, even if Americans thought that Muslims are generally good people, which rapidly, this is what happened uh, uh, um, with the Japanese. Uh, uh, this is what happened um, in instance Muslims being looked at as again enemies of the state. And although they are not, this kind of orchestration puts them in that particular light, puts their lives, their liberty, their welfare, um, and the value of their families uh, at risk. And uh, this is what we have to be concerned about. And we have to see that all Muslims, we, we, we can't look at We have to stand up and make a very clear statement. Un-American, there is no way that Islam and the sentiments of Islam would ever um, justify this kind of an action done by a Muslim or a non-Muslim, done to a Muslim or done to a non-Muslim. So you say that this action is un-American and against the ideals of Islam as well. So... Um, do you feel that Islamic and American ideals are diametrically opposed to one another, or can Islam and America coexist? Well, I just want to answer this in a very general way, because um, I think that um, there are some perceptions, feelings, um, unjustifiably so, 
that somehow or another, Islam represents a clash of civilizations. And some people have written that uh, or proposed that kind of an idea, uh, which I think has no real justification. If anybody reads uh, the preamble to the Constitution of the United States, let's, and let's not um, make any judgments about um, the government, its representation of the preamble. Let's talk about the preamble that was written and a preamble that this government was set upon as a new government and that a preamble that attracts in its structure, its wordings and values, attracts people from all over the world to come to America to have a sense of freedom, liberty, uh, human value, opportunity for all people. Um, <clears throat> I think that if we review that preamble and how it generally applies to all Americans, Islam has no opposition to that. In fact, Islam promotes that. Um, uh, anyone who has the chance to read the Quran, and I always suggest to all Americans, get a copy. And if you, if you don't can't afford to do that, there are Muslim institutions, Islamic institutions that will provide you with a free copy. I mean, it's not like something you just can't get or something that's unreachable or unaccessible. And even if you cannot do that, it's, it's, it's available online. <laughs> Anyone can just go to Google and put the, put the Quran in the, the word Q-U-R-A-N, and it's right there online. You can just peruse through it, review through it, and you will find that the principles of the Quran and the behavior of the Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessing be upon him, sets no opposition whatsoever to the principles and premises, okay, of the American Constitution. Now, there are parts of the Constitution which are very active uh, to the national structure, idea, history, of the founding fathers, if you want to call that. something subjective, talking about the general values and premises which attracts and envelops beings who here. Most America, whether by or by immigration, they never go back home. Which means that when they come here, they reasonably find what they're looking for: the opportunity, or the freedom, or the liberation, or the so forth and so on. Um, also, um, I think that. What Islam sets forward as a premise of human dignity, human progress, uh, human happiness, human safety, um, that's the premise of Islam, the social premise of Islam. Islam is not a premise of just some kind of an ideological belief in God, because God doesn't need anything from the human. The connection with God is to the human being capacity to add value to his or her society, family, neighbors. Uh, in that respect, the principles of Islam are very synonymous with the principles of the American Constitution, if we really look at it objectively. And that's the premises I'm trying to put forward. I have my own subjective feelings about America, the government, its history, its challenges, its social uh, uh, problems, 
Um, but I don't have any issue um, with the premises and values of the American Constitution. In fact, I feel very honored and favored by God uh, to be an American citizen and have the kind of privileges, constitutional privileges, um, just because I'm a citizen of the United States, because I'm a holder of, the, of, the, of an American passport. And my travel around the world in the past 50 years, and I have been, um, I've traveled now to 90 countries. Um, I have been envied by everyone just because I'm an American. And no one really had a problem with me being a Muslim because being an American, you're already envied. Everyone knows the privileges that you have just to speak, to think freely, to own property, to choose to go, come and go as I want to, to, be, to have mobility in the society, to have people to come to my home and visit. And I go to other people's home and visit to have the right to assemble in the public without even, at, you don't have to get a license to assemble in a public place. Americans have values that everyone in the world desires. And as we speak, there are people that are on boats, planes, ships. Uh, I mean, people are walking across deserts, mountains, risking their lives, paying everything they have just to get to Europe and just to get to America. The most preferred place of immigration in the entire world is the United States of America. And there's a reason for that. And uh, as a person who travels around the world and I have seen my share of grief and tragedy and poverty and human suffering, I've seen my share of it. I am very grateful when I come back to my country to realize that just because I'm an American citizen, I have privileges that most people in the world do not have. Now that's a reality. The fact that I'm a Muslim sets some challenges, sets up some challenges for me. Uh, that's to be very real, but that's the American government. And that's not the entire government. It's a particular group of people who have probably traditionally been here for a long time and they have opposition to certain groups, certain ethnic groups, certain religious groups, or whatever the case might be. Well, that comes with the territory. And we Muslims need to meet those challenges as other people have met those challenges. Jewish people, when they came to this country and immigrated to this country, regardless of what people want to say, they met with those challenges. Polish people, when they came here, Catholic people, when they came here, Hindu people, Buddhist people, all kinds of people. When you enter a melting pot, you enter some form of some, some people receive you well and other people reject you. You have some prejudice. Uh, you have some people that are very philosophical and very open-handed. Well, Muslims in America are facing some challenges, but I think that for the most part, we have access to almost every privilege that any other American has access to. That means that if we are prepared, well, we can compete. And if we compete, we have the chance to win. And whoever in America wins, whether it's a team, whether it's a corporation, whether it's an individual, 
When you win in America, you are awarded a station in America, a social distinction in America, where your religion becomes fairly insignificant. Let us use the Mormons, um, formerly called the Church of Jesus Christ of the Latter-day Saints. Just look back 120 years ago, maybe 130 years ago, and see what was the status of the Mormons vis-a-vis uh, uh, -vis other mainline, mainstream Christians. They were, they were um, oppressed. They were um, more than oppressed. They were driven out of certain parts of America by their fellow Christians. And so over a period of time, um, they consolidated themselves in a particular region, which is now today called um, Nevada. I think that their main city is, no, I'm not, not Nevada, Utah, excuse me. And, you know, if anybody looks at the, the history of the Mormons, you have to be, you, you really have to be impressed that they came from zero, meaning that being oppressed, being um, uh, demonized, looked at as a cult, and so forth and so on. But today, what's the status? What is the social status of the Mormons in America today? As a result of their being resilient, as a result of their being patient, quiet, focused, um, taking advantage of the privileges that are available and the resources that are available. What's their status today? Well, I've been to Utah. Um, I've done my own introspection and research on the Mormons. Uh, many people don't, don't know this, but this is a fact. The Mormons are the wealthiest Christians in America. They are probably the most socially, politically powerful Christians in America. And they've been um, now well received into the mainstream of America by other Christians. Now, it may have taken 120 years, 140 years, whatever, but I think that their progress stands for what can happen uh, in America to a group of people who were demonized by their own fellow Christians. I think that there's the same room and opportunity for Muslims in America because until today, there may be 2 million Mormons in America, if there are 2 million. But as we stand today, there are over 6 million Muslims in America. And Muslims, we have a longer history than the Mormons. We have a long, longer global history with more resources, um, <clears throat> in my estimation, a much more profound and diversified distinction. So I, I happen to be um, uh, optimistic about Islam and America. That is, I believe, I believe that Islam is good for America uh, because what Islam suggests is that if we contribute what Islam gives to us as Muslims, we will help refine the society and refine the idea and polish some of the 
um, the principles of America and fill up some of the empty crevices of America and moral voids of America. And we will bring to the table the human resources that other people have brought to the table. And we will bring another level of moral uh, and cultural uh, and religious sophistication to America. Uh, and this is what America is about. Other people bringing diversification and refinement and resources and investing them into the society. This is what's going to, this is what I believe is going to happen. On, on the other hand, uh, I believe that America is also good for Islam. Now, what do I mean by that? I didn't say that Donald Trump is good for Islam. I didn't say that the KKK is good for Islam or white supremacists are good for Islam or, or that the so-called evangelical Zionists, that they are good for Islam. I, I didn't say that. And I didn't even say that uh, all, Amer all Americans, whether they're white or black or Hispanic or whatever, that they're all good for Islam. I didn't say that. I mean that America as a society with its institutions, with its resources, um, America with its constitutional privileges, America with its historical premises is good for Islam. Why? Because it's a soil that the seed of Islam has been planted, is growing at a very powerful rate. Uh, and when you take aside the subjective demonization and uh, this whole atmosphere of uh, Islamophobia, when you take all of that to the side, Muslims have in the last 50 years made considerable investments in America uh, and made considerable commitments to America that has shown what it is to be an American. And I think from the outside, if it's looked at uh, objectively, um, my perception uh, would be very much supported. Now, my own uh, colleagues, Muslim colleagues, whether they are scholars or they are students of knowledge or whether they are lay people or whatever, um, to sell this idea to them might be uh, a bit difficult in the beginning because people have their own subjective feelings. Uh, they've been victimized and uh, with this Islamophobia and uh, a great deal of Muslims right now um, are kind of feeling, you know, that they don't have many options and that, you know, they're at the bottom of the barrel. Well, I don't feel that way based upon my exposure, based upon my research, and based upon the privileges and the resources that America has given to me, uh, I know where I was born. I know where I started out at. And I, I'm, I think I thank, I thank Almighty God because I don't believe that the opportunities that's been given to me, um, I could have done this or I could have achieved this or that I could be a part of a, a legacy to even say what I'm saying. Um, if I was in some other country other than America. So I believe in Qadr. That is the will of God. Uh, I believe, you understand me, and um, I believe in um, the grace of God. And I think that it is the grace of Almighty God and it is the determination of Almighty God that Muslims like myself have turned to Islam as a set of values while we retain the responsibility, and while we retain the original premise uh, of the constitutional values of the American society. And I think that Muslims who have come from some 39 or 40 Muslim countries who have come to this country in the last 50 years, similar to myself, um, they have embraced the values of the American constitution and made them better human beings. 
they have used their Islamic values uh, to pray, um, to worship, uh, to make progress, to make their investment, to be good citizens, to be good neighbors. And all of this seems to suggest to me uh, that the cup or the plate or the dish or the table of America is good for Islam. Now, if we can proceed with that premise, that Islam is good for America, and that America is good for Islam, if we can proceed with that premise, I think that 10 years from now, 20 years from now, um, the status uh, of Muslims in America would not be expressed in their numbers. It would be expressed in their resources. It would be expressed in the residue, and it would be expressed in the development that they have participated in to make America a greater country than it has. And Mr. Trump, it would behoove Mr. Trump if he was a wise man. Unfortunately, he's not. But if he's a wise man and somehow or another he listens to some wise people, if he wants to make America great, whether he thinks it has been great, that it is great, if he wants to make it greater than it is, he should look at the investment that God has made and the, um, the determination that God has made to put six million Muslims here, uh, people who are part of the Islamic faith. And then he should look at the performance of the Islamic faith over the period of the last 1300 years and the civilizations that it has created and the resources that it has developed of, upon which the American society and its institutions are still beneficiaries of today. Um, Assalamu alaikum, Shaykhana. Um, it's a pleasure to be part of this um, interview today again. Um, I just wanted to let people know and remind them that we are on YouTube Live. Um, we're trying uh, this today on the Sheikh's official YouTube channel. Um, so please make sure to share the link to the live video um, and let your friends and brothers and sisters and people in your network know that we are on YouTube. Um, we have noticed and we've seen and we, we, uh, we know that the videos and material of uh, Sheikh Khalid Yassin is all over the internet. Um, so we've been trying to make sure that people know where the Sheikh's official YouTube page is, where his Facebook official is, where his Twitter is. So please, uh, we would appreciate if we, if you helped us bring, um, traffic and you know just come to the pages that we tell you are the sheikh's official pages um and make sure to share that live youtube video uh with other people uh sister naima thank you very much for that this is probably a good time for me to remind people that um the the 50 years of my uh life or 52 years being a muslim um uh has been captured uh, and is being organized in the form of a book uh, and a movie uh, called Son of a Prince After X. Um, <clears throat> and Son of a Prince After X is sort of descriptive of um, the, the generation that came directly after the assassination or the phenomena uh, of the late al Haj Malik Shabazz, better known as Malcolm X. Um, I'm referring to myself as a son of that prince. Um, only I'm, I'm one of the sons of that prince. You know, uh, all, all of my colleagues 
um, we call them the OGs, the older generation who were uh, the baby boomers. Um, <clears throat> we are all sons and daughters of that prince. This son of the prince uh, it has documented his life travels and experiences uh, in the form of a, a fairly huge manuscript that is now being developed by some of our creative uh, writers. Um, and um, we are now organizing uh, a movie. So our projection is that the book should be ready for publication and perhaps the movie should be prepared um, to be launched as early as September 2018. So we want to um, remind our people that um, all of what we're doing, uh, the, I mean, whether it is the book or it is the movie itself, uh, the title is fairly self-descriptive, Son of a Prince. Uh, that's who we are. That's who I am. Um, and um, the new the reverts, the first generation of reverts here in America. And after X means the 50 years. What has happened in the last 50 years after Malcolm X? What he would have seen, what he would have experienced, how would he have reacted? What would his advice have been? We don't know that. But what we are trying to do uh, is take the moral responsibility of being the eyes and ears of, of, of the prince or his progeny, uh, Malcolm X, and participate in America and let America see the value of Islam and let Americans appreciate the opportunities that they have vis-a-vis -vis the rest of the world, the distinction that they have in the rest of the world, um, so that this message, Islam, America, and the world, will become etched into the history of America uh, through a movie and through a book. And my, um, my hope, my prayer, is that my progeny, my children, my grandchildren, my great-grandchildren, my mother, who is still living and is a Muslim, and her generation, my colleagues, who uh, themselves probably 60, 70, maybe some of them even 80 years old, that there will be something um, for them to make a reference to that will document our legacy. Uh, because Malcolm's legacy was enshrined through a movie, and although we don't, most of us, we don't agree that that movie was a very good depiction, but at least it's, it was there. Uh, his book was, um, his, his life was further enshrined by um, the book that was written by Alex Haley. And although we know some of the subjective motivations behind that, still there was a book and there was a movie. So here we are 50 years after Malcolm X and uh, after traveling around the world and all over America uh, and having uh, opinions and having the challenges that we have in our experiences. We're now documenting that book um, and we're also turning that book into a movie. And we would ask um, 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 our viewers to please keep that in mind. And so I think that we have a, a couple of ways that which they can uh, support this effort. Uh, we have, what is it called, you carry? Um, you can go to you caring and you can contribute to um, um, this project that we're working on. 
um, you can collaborate. You can, I mean, you can write to us and we can give you any information that you might want to make you a part of it and feel a sense of belonging uh, to the project. Um, we are working on the movie. You can come to our Facebook page and you can also contribute that way. You can go to um, shekhaledyasin.com, um, skypurpose.com. Uh, you can go there. That's our website. And the first thing you can do, which is very easy, like and share. I mean, we don't need you to like and share because of popularity. We need you to like and care because that's a way of supporting us in social media. The other thing that you can do is that you can go to our Facebook page. You can go to our website uh, and you can actually register and subscribe. Now, this is very important. On our YouTube channel, it's important for you to be able to subscribe. I think before the end of our uh, broadcast, uh, there will be a, a button that comes up uh, uh, on the screen that asks you to subscribe. We ask each one of you just to subscribe. This will have some, uh, this will give us some leverage, just as a, something very important. It's cost you nothing to do that. Now, if you don't support it, you don't believe it, you don't believe it deserves your support, then we're not asking you to do something against your own moral reasoning. But if you are a friend, a family member, a supporter, a student um, of Sheikh Khalid Yassin or the work that we've done, then we're asking you to like and share and uh, go to our website, SheikhKhalidYassin.com, SkyPurpose.com, register and subscribe. And there are many benefits of subscription. And before the end of this broadcast, we ask you to subscribe. This will really be helpful to us. So let's continue. All right. Thank you, Sheikh. Um, well, do you want to mention your tour as well? Yeah, um, of course. Um, uh, once our once our trailer, you know, um, you know, if you go to the internet. And you've probably seen in the last three or four years, we have a teaser. And we have to make sure you understand that that was just a teaser. Uh, after X Final was a teaser. Now, there was legitimate work that went into doing this teaser uh, for the After X Final. And it does represent the sensitivities and the initiation of this project. But now we are diligently engaged in the development of the actual movie for television. Uh, one of the stages of that is just preparing the script, performing, a um, creating a trailer, uh, putting the team together, the package together. Um, and that's what we're doing now. And we're, uh, we are hoping that in the next 30 to 45 days, we will complete that stage. Now, uh, in doing so, once we do that, we will visit 10 or 15 cities in America, uh, doing what? Shooting the film, meeting with people, uh, networking with uh, people who have resources in the uh, uh, film industry, meeting with family and some of my family and friends and supporters and students and meeting with people who themselves are intellectual representatives of Islam in America who can contribute to this film. So 10 or 15 cities 
uh, we will cover between now and September. Uh, secondly, we will visit 10 or 15 countries, um, many of them in West Africa and some of them in East Africa and others in uh, other parts uh, of, the, of, the, of the world uh, where we have visited in the past. So uh, these are the, this is the tours that we will make around America. Uh, this will also include the tours that we will make around the world um, to give everyone access and exposure uh, to this powerful project. Um, I was, yeah, I was just thinking, um, we've got a few people watching now. Um, just another reminder, uh, please, everyone, brothers and sisters, make sure that you let people know that the live streaming is happening on YouTube now. Um, we understand that there might have been some confusion last time we were on Facebook Live um, this week or on YouTube, but these will be the two main channels we'll be on. So we'll be on YouTube, on the Sheikh's official page, and then on Facebook. Um, so please just keep in mind that we are on the Sheikh's YouTube uh, channel and make sure to bring traffic towards that direction. Okay, continuing our questions, Sheikh. Um, you had said that part of the intent of producing the movie Son of a Prince after X is to document and tell the story of Muslims in America over the last 50 years. Why do you feel that it is important for people to acknowledge and understand and witness the story of Muslims over the last 50 years in America? Well, if we don't tell our own story, somebody else will tell the story. Uh, and obviously, um, we have the, uh, we're in the best position um, to tell our own story. Uh, we have all the tools that are available for us to tell our story. And not just tell our story to fellow Americans, but to tell our story to the world. So we are committed to using the resources that are available to us because, you know, even the Quran mentioned to us uh, in the fifth ayah of Surah Al-Baqarah, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, he said, he's describing the characteristics of believers. Those who spend out of what we have provided for them. Now, uh, if my neighbor doesn't understand my faith, he might respect me, but he doesn't understand my faith. Uh, how would he then really appreciate um, my family, my contribution, my presence in that neighborhood or in the society. So um, the book and the movie uh, is my attempt to use my exposure and my experience and my interaction with people all over the world. Um, it's my attempt to exercise my, um, my discretion and to fulfill my responsibility uh, as a Muslim and an American citizen, to set the record straight, to give people a different perspective. And okay, um, I have to admit that much of what I have to say is my own subjective views. But every author, that's what they do. Um, um, everyone that makes a film, that's what they do. They take a set of incidents or a subject and they give their subjective view. Um, this is part of the, the dynamics of being an American, uh, being in the, in the modern world, taking advantage of uh, multimedia. 
Uh, at the same token, uh, I will be using the sources of the Qur'an. Um, uh, I'll be using the life of the Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessing be upon him. I'll be using the phenomena, okay, of um, uh, American opportunity and resources and the American Constitution and, and my being between these dynamics to tell my story. And I will tell my story like Mike Mark Twain, like whoever wrote Mark Twain. I will tell my story um, like, um, like Mr. Obama told his story. Um, I will tell my story like many other Americans, Will Rogers, how he told his story. Uh, because this is part of um, an indiv individual uh, opportunity and, um, and responsibility to tell their story if they believe that their story is worthy, that other people will benefit from. And I do believe that my family, uh, my friends, my students, my supporters, and other Americans and people from around the world that I have met, I think that they will, they will appreciate my story. And, uh, and it's better to tell one story while one is living and well. Because when you're not well, maybe you don't even have the energy to tell your story. And if you're not living, then we leave the story or the legacy, if it will be told at all, we leave it for other people. And this is what we're working uh, to take advantage of. I've read that up to 60% of Americans have never met a Muslim before in their life. And as you had mentioned before, many of the representations that Americans see of Muslims is that they identify with terrorism. Um, or And... Muslims are very much associated with the 9-11 attacks on New York City. So um, how do Muslims feel about attacks like 9-11 and feel about people like Osama bin Laden? Well, you know, about 60% um, um, of Americans, I don't know how accurate that statistic or guesstimate it is. But, you know, Probably 60% of Americans never met a Mormon. <laughs> so that's, I mean, 300 million people in America, 50 uh, contiguous states in America um, with so many, so much diversity. There are people in America who were born in a town and they never left that town. So they don't know, even know other Americans who live in that state. So um, uh, we don't, I don't personally feel that's so, so much of a challenge. However, uh, yes, it that does become a, a challenge when people become prejudiced uh, by um, subjective um, uh, media um, that has um, a very clear Islamophobic agenda. Um, and we Muslims have to be very active, proactive, um, to reverse that kind of, of um, unfair um, and subjective uh, discrimination. Now about 9-11, I think that um, maybe 
this is what, 9-11 is like um, almost 17 years ago now. This September, I think, will be like almost 17 years. Well, the association that Muslims, the association that the public had with Muslims regarding 9-11 at that time is quite different than what it is today. Uh, because in time, a lot of other things come out. Uh, a lot of other information is has to be released by the government. And I think that it's fair to say um, that there's quite a bit of, of um, forensic evidence that shows that um, a group of Muslims with box cutters um, and the ambition to destroy uh, an icon of American society like the World Trade Center, um, that the sophistication of that operation was way beyond their capacity. Secondly, forensic evidence is showing that um, the bringing down of the World Trade Centers uh, was a phenomena uh, that actually defied all the scientific facts itself. Now, all the open-minded Americans have to do is step outside of Disneyland and Steven Spielberg land and just look at the forensic facts. And we'll see that, you know, if we don't want to say that it was an inside job, which many experts non-Muslim experts are saying that this was an inside job. Now, if we don't want to say that, and this is that Sheikh Khalid Yassin saying this, these are forensic experts who previously were associated with the government, forensic experts from institutions, forensic experts from all over the world who themselves have collaborated together and shared the information. They're saying that this was an inside job. Now, inside what? Was it inside the government? We don't know. We can't say but was it an inside job, meaning that a job that took place with the collaboration of people inside of America before any outsiders even got involved? That's what we believe the evidence seems to indicate, that there were bombs um, set up inside those buildings, um, just like a demolition, um, which means they have to be wired, they have to be synchronized, it takes months it takes weeks and months to set up that kind of sophistication. And how would they do that inside of buildings who the, uh, which is being monitored 24 hours a day? We say that um, those are answers that, uh, those are questions that have to be answered by the facts. Now, we're not saying that the, the official report that was given, we're not going to say that we, differ with the official report as a whole. But we'll say that um, the forensic evidence seems to suggest uh, that a new investigation, a new arbitrary investigation, um, uh, needs to be done um, in the interest of, not in the interest of clearing Muslims, because if some Muslims participated in something of that, if they collaborate with something like that, even if they were just part of the conspiracy, they're still guilty. But if there were others who were complicit to it, the American uh, society, Americans need to know that. And therefore, um, uh, I think that YouTube is available and people should go to YouTube and see what kind of evidence, forensic evidence, 
uh, has been collected in these 17 years in regards to that event. And I think that what we'll find out is that um, those Muslims were not alone if they were Muslims at all. Because nowadays, just somebody can put on a turban or wear a beard and call themselves whatever they want to call themselves. This doesn't mean that it has anything to do with Islam. It just means that some people who call themselves a certain name or whatever it is did some act, but it is obvious they were not by themselves because they would not have had the capacity to perform an act that now we see requires tremendous scientific um, refinement, knowledge, collaboration, synchronization, so forth and so on. Um, just like um, the murdering, the assassination of our president, John F. Kennedy, we now know that Lee Harvey Oswald was not the lone shooter of the president. Now, I mean, well-respected people in the field, field of research and film have um, put this out to the American public, even, even recently. Um, but what can we do about it? That administration of that time uh, cannot be prosecuted because it's like 25 or 30 years afterwards or more. So um, uh, I would say that Islam as a faith has not been indicted by 9-11. Islam as a faith has not been indicted by any such actions like that because Islam as a faith doesn't contain any such um, parameters or principles that justify the taking of human life or the destruction of property or the sub, uh, subverting a civilization or a government. This has nothing to do with Islam. And if any Muslims have those kinds of sentiments, they are extremists, they are fanatics, they are terrorists, just like the Christian extremists, fanatics, and terrorists who committed so many actions around the world uh, and are still committing acts in America that we see. Uh, so, uh, and, uh, and I say that, you know, terrorism is wrong, whether it is retail terrorism, you know, where 300 people are killed or whether 5,000 people are killed, that's retail terrorism. But wholesale terrorism that involves the taking of lives and the destruction of countries and uh, ripping out and, uh, and robbing of natural resources of people, which amounts to the millions of people, which Christians have done all over the world throughout history and which um, um, Christian nations are doing as we speak. So terrorism, fanaticism, extremism, and criminal behavior immoral, unethical behavior is wrong, whether it's done by people who claim to be Christians, Jews, or Muslims. And Islam, or Christianity, or Judaism, as, as scriptural faiths, have nothing to do with that. Um, well, still speaking of 9-11, and the fact that the incident, regardless of what people think who was behind it, still had a, a huge and significant um, impact on the lives of millions of Muslims, whether uh, for the way Muslims are perceived in the United States, their own Muslim experience here, uh, people who lived in uh, America before 9-11 and after 9-11 talk about how things changed dramatically for them. There was a time when 
nobody knew who Muslims are and what Islam is. Um, and then all of a sudden, the spotlight was on Muslims. Yes. Um, so that had a huge uh, change in the way people experience being Muslims in the United States. So that's one aspect. Um, I would like to ask um, your opinion on how do you see things changing before and after 9-11 for Muslims in the United States. The second aspect is the political implications for 9-11 in the Muslim world. Um, there were so many wars and so many programs um, uh, like uh, the war on terror, for example, counter extremism and counter radicalization projects. Um, these are projects that several um, major powers and countries all over the world, not just in the United States, are working very hard on. And this has an impact on the lives of so many ordinary Muslims. So um, I would like um, to hear your opinion and your thoughts um, in this regard. Well, um, thank you very much, uh, Sister Naima. That is a very powerful um, uh, question. And my uh, introspection on that is the follows. 9-11 uh, as an incident, as an, uh, an episodic incident, as it was seeming, in my estimation, was designed to be, uh, created a social, political um, um, challenge for Muslims in the United States and Muslims outside of the United States for the reasons for which it was enacted. Um, you know, um, but Muslims, Islam as a faith is very resilient. Faith itself in God throughout history has been very resilient against all kind of satanic um, conspiracies. So I am again optimistic that Muslims will, Muslims are um, rebounding. Um, Islam is still moving uh, at, uh, at tremendous uh, leaps and bounds. Um, all statisticians, all statistics uh, seem to um, say the same thing that Islam is the fastest moving faith in the Western Hemisphere, if not the world. Um, Islam is moving, people are coming to Islam at a rap, more rapid pace than towards any other faith on the globe. Um, in spite of 9-11, in spite of the counterinsurgencies, in spite of the uh, war on terror, in spite of this and in spite of that. So this is one thing. Uh, the other thing is that um, the best deal comes from the hottest fire. Um, uh, the, 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 the most valuable, um, the most valuable things that the earth produces, it produces from the most pressure. Diamonds, gold, so forth and so on. So I believe that in the divine um, scheme of things, these challenges are built uh, to produce the very best Muslim. Uh, and Muslims in America are becoming very diverse, very resilient, um, and forces them to be able to defend themselves, defend their faith, uh, mixed with other Americans. 
um, show other Americans the value that they have to this country. Show other Americans um, um, how remote such acts are to Islam, how foreign that they are to Islam. And I think this is a continuous challenge that we will face uh, as Muslims in America, as Muslims around the world are facing similar challenges. Uh, those challenges will continue as they have throughout history, and we will not get rid of those challenges. They will simply not go away. The armies of God uh, uh, have armies of the devil or, or shaitan uh, that will challenge them. This has been the history of faith uh, versus materialism. Um, now, uh, in, the, in this regard, uh, I think that um, Muslims uh, in America uh, will find an ongoing challenge not just to respond to the issue of 9-11, but to distinguish themselves as American citizens and distinguish themselves as American citizens who are also Muslims. And American citizens who are Muslims, who have the capacity, okay, to take advantage of the resources that are in America, not only for the benefit of their faith, but to take advantage of the resources of America to help refine their society. Jewish people did it. Catholic people did it. Hindu people did it. Japanese people did it. So are there, were their challenges any less than ours? No, they were not necessarily. And it would be foolish and prejudicial and narrow-minded for us to say, say so. Now, do we have some unique challenges? Of course we do. But those unique challenges are no longer uh, able to be identified as ethnic challenges because now Islam is not locked inside of any ethnic group any longer. Okay, predominantly we say that the reverts in America, for the most part, they are African-American, but they are also now Hispanic Americans. They are also um, white Americans, um, and they're just as Muslim as anybody else. And they're also Americans like anyone else. So then the challenges take upon a different set of resources, a different set of tangents, a different set of uh, aspects, and the history of Islam, the the profile of Islam throughout history is that Islam works its way through all of those challenges uh, to give credence and contribution to any civilization that it, it, uh, it arises or it breeds in and adds refinement to that society uh, um, uh, to such an extent that every place that Islam has landed and bred and developed and taken root and produced fruit uh, has been a um, has been a um, an a compliment to humanity, and taking humanity to another level, offering them different diversified resources. So again, um, I think that uh, Muslims should uh, keep in mind uh, that um, when they are attacked, either verbally or ideologically or physically. Um, uh, this is part of the territory. You got to take that with the territory. And where would you rather be? Where would you rather be uh, to defend Islam or to defend yourself? In a place where you have no civil liberties? In a place where you don't have freedom to express yourself? Or to be in America? Well, it's obvious. 
uh, I mean, the question is quite obvious. And again, I thank God that uh, um, that as an American citizen, I can answer these questions without feeling any kind of apprehension about my safety, without having any apprehensions about my uh, being um, uh, arrested, indicted, and placed in jail without trial or whatever the case might be, simply because I'm expressing my views. Now, what could happen, what has happened, is that any Muslim, anyone supporting Islam could be singled out. Some conspiracy could be enacted upon them. And yes, that, that's always the case in the, with any kind of faith or uh, any kind of social challenge or whatever the case might be. But um, I, I think that those of us who are social activists and, uh, and, uh, and people who believe in the ideals of uh, human liberty and freedom and also believe in the ideals of worshiping Almighty God and the way in which God wants us to worship, uh, we should be very much prepared uh, to suffer the uh, indignations and to uh, meet the challenges that others similar to us uh, met in the past. Um, Sheikh, I have another um, question regarding, again, the way our story is being told um, and the fact that, like you're saying, um, there are people who are speaking on behalf of Muslims and talking about Islam and writing about Islam, and we should intervene and create our own stories and our, our own narratives and make it available for Muslims and non-Muslims. So one of the phenomena that... Um, a lot of Muslims are dealing with, and all of us are dealing with right now, is all of the labeling and names and affiliations that people throw left and right, whether they know what they're talking about or not. And that comes from both Muslims and non-Muslims. So um, you have people talking about being Salafi, being Ahlul Hadith, being uh, Sufi, being uh, Islamist being um, politically involved Muslims, having all sorts of tags and names and labels. So a lot of people are so confused. And um, I think, in my opinion, um, our scholars and our respected speakers and sheikhs need to talk to us about what we should do regarding all of these names and all of these labels that are confusing people. Well, again, thank you very much uh, for that um, inquiry. And I'm sure that uh, the, the question that you asked is um, that many other people share the same uh, concern. So let me, in my own inimitable way, uh, try to address um, that um, set of challenges. First of all, um, everyone has the right uh, as a Muslim to wear whatever jacket they want to wear to call themselves, in addition to Muslim, whatever other nomenclature or adjective um, that they want to attach to themselves. It doesn't make them better or doesn't necessarily make them any worse. But in terms of necessity, the Quran says what God said to Abraham that is, we named you as Muslims. It means that it should be enough to be called a Muslim. Now, if you want to add some further refinement or some further clarification because of historical, social, ideological, 
issues that took place. So you don't want to be generalized as a Muslim, but you want to be known to be a good Muslim, a correct Muslim, you know, or whatever. That's okay. But this is a phenomenon that has been, that has taken place in all religions. You know, um, the Protestants broke away from the Catholics as a protest uh, to what they thought was the domination of the subjective religious sentiments of the Roman Catholic Church. And they called themselves Protestants. They themselves represent today a, a, a huge segment of the Christians in the world today. Then evangelical Christians and other kinds of Christians, the Calvinists and others, they broke away from the general model of Protestants and became Baptists and Methodists and so forth and so on. So this is a phenomenon that you find in every religion. Um, this whole idea of Catholicizing religion, and I use the word Catholicizing because the Catholics, they did that. They created what they considered to be their version, their civilizational, societal version of Christianity, and they called it the Catholic Church, meaning the most correct, uh, meaning the most authentic, meaning the one that has been documented by the powers to be, so forth and so on. So I'm using that terminology in this, in, for this reason. So there are Muslims who also want to Catholicize Islam, and they will call themselves different names to verify or to authenticate themselves, whether they are Ahlul Hadithi or call themselves Ahlul Bayti, or whether they are people who want to call themselves, associate themselves with the Dawah to Salafiyyah, or some other people who want to call themselves uh, uh, people of the Tasawwif, the uh, Tariqah. Uh, these are all movements which have their own values, which have their own justifications, and every Muslim can associate as they want to for the reasons that they have. Um, because of a particular scholar or a particular methodology or a particular persuasion or a particular understanding. And uh, we should not, as mature Muslims, engage in arguments that lead to polarization, that leads to enmity, um, subversion, and hatred, and separation. We should not engage in that, just to be good Muslims. We should respect the right of every Muslim to live with, associate with, follow, adapt to whatever group, name, scholar, persuasion, reflection, platform that they feel is good for them. But they should never impose that persuasion upon others. Neither should they use um, terminologies to demean others to incriminate others, to call others by names that sort of take them out of the legitimatization of Islam. Because to do so is immature, to do so is un-Islamic. And, you know, there are people who have um, very good behaviors, but ideologically, they have drifted away from the main sources of Islam. There are others who have very strong um, rhetoric and ideological um, uh, um, rhetorical, ideological connections to the sources of Islam, but they have very bad behavior. Obviously, the object 
should be for a Muslim to be as close as they can to the sources of Islam without veering to the right or to the left, but also to maintain good behavior with other Muslims, with other human beings, with people of other faiths, because this was the manner of the Prophet Now you can call yourself any name you want to call yourself, you see? But if you enter a bus or a train or a room and you smell bad, it doesn't matter what you call yourself. It doesn't matter even how you're dressed. If you smell bad, you're going to be offensive to other people. If you act in a foul way, you can call yourself whatever you want to call yourself. But if you are foul in your speech, if you are foul in your behavior, if you are antisocial with people, you are non-progressive with people, you are socially dysfunctional, you don't have a concern for other people, your neighbors, and you're just calling yourself some names and wearing a particular uniform and insisting upon some kind of um, Catholicized um, nomenclature of Islam that we are the ones that's correct and the others are not correct, then this really uh, is uh, an antithesis of Islam. So I would advise Muslims that when they are invited through the rhetoric or through the materials, the written materials, or through the um, or visiting other groups of Muslims to, um, to be very patient, um, to be very, um, to investigate. Um, don't make quick decisions. Sit and listen to other Muslims. Respect them. Show them that you have the concern to listen to them. But don't embrace groups Join them, eat with them, pray with them, respect them, but don't join any group until you are reasonably satisfied that regardless of their rhetoric and regardless of what they say, that both their, their liturgy, that means their religious rhetoric, which is documented in some forms and shapes, and their behavior both are in sync. Because at the end of the day, the Prophet said that Islam is good behavior. Islam is good conduct. You will know a Muslim by the way they treat their neighbor. You will know a Muslim how they interact with their family members. You will know a Muslim when you work with them and how they deal with their co-workers. You will know a Muslim by the investment they make in their society. You will know a Muslim how they deal when it comes to business principles. You will know a Muslim in terms of their tolerance and their behavior towards others. You will know a Muslim that when they are strong, how they deal with the weak. You will know a Muslim that if they are weak, how they are patient uh, with their circumstances. You will know a Muslim through their charity. You will know a Muslim through their smile. You will know a Muslim in their profile. You will know a Muslim in their clemency. There's many ways to know a Muslim, and it's not through their books. It is not through their books. It is not through their fervent attachment to their scholars. It is not just in their rituals. It's not in what they wear. Uh, it's not in what they impose upon others, because in most cases, uh, we find in the nature of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, Allah Subhanahu described him as a Rahmah for the hum humanity. That he is a Rahmah, a Rahmatul Lil Alameen. See, he didn't say Rahmah for the Muslimin. He said Rahmah 
that he's a mercy, a healing for the whole creation. That means if a Christian met the Prophet Muhammad, if a Jewish person met the Prophet Muhammad, if a Hindu or a Buddhist or anyone with any, what they met the Prophet, they would be greeted well, they would be treated well. Um, uh, if they stayed with him, they would be fed, they would be protected. Uh, they would not be cursed, they would not be condemned, they would not be treated in a bad uh, way, uh, and the Qur'an sets this forward. So if we are not, as Muslims, um, delivering to other human beings the behavior of the Prophet Islam, just we are imposing what we believe to be the principles of Islam, the rituals of Islam, the, um, the duties of Islam, the, the characteristics of a Muslim, and we want to impose it upon people. No, Allah, he said, There's no com uh, compulsion in the religion. We can't compel another Muslim to believe like we believe. We can't compel non-Muslims to believe in Islam. We can't compel our family members even inside of our home to pray or anything. We can't compel. There's no compulsion in the religion. So then how can we believe that we are correct, the most correct, the only correct, and then we start to curse other people and delegitimize other people's faith just because we believe that we are correct and we are. The... So that's what I want to say. We need to be patient. We need to be tolerant. And you find a Muslim that's intolerant, you find a person has a defect in their religion. You find a Muslim that is bad in their behavior, there's a defect in their religion. The defect belongs to them, it doesn't belong to Islam. And I think that we have a chance in a society where everyone can practice their faith or their non-faith as they please. And we can see this happening in America. Somebody who's LGBTQZ or whatever the case might be, constitutionally, they can practice their non-belief or their, uh, uh, their personal ethics or whatever you want to call it. And no one can do what? No one can force them anything otherwise, as long as they are still within the realms of what the Constitution has set forward. So if, if that means that we have to be tolerant with the most radical parts of the society, we don't have to accept them, we don't have to embrace them, but we have to be tolerant that they're also Americans and by constitutional rights, they have the right to express themselves. Similarly, we Muslims who are 6 million people in America, perhaps there may be 40 different persuasions of Muslims so socially, ideologically, um, religiously, ethnically, or whatever the case might be, if we want to consolidate and make a difference as Muslims here in America, we have to strive towards unity, to have the consolidation of leadership, to have the consolidation of our resources, to have a very clear identity in terms of our communities, so that we can use that consolidation to invest in America like other religious groups did and create the possibility or the premise of, of some kind of a, a strength. And when you have strength, you're in a country that is open, you have wealth, you have resources, then you can establish your faith with institutions and tangible resources like any other faith. And if we want that to happen, we Muslims have to have a lot more tolerance and that means lowering your wing, um, uh, emphasizing the universality of Islam and modifying the distinctions. Yeah. And, and Allah knows best. Thank you very much, Sheikh. Um, we're coming up on about an hour and a half now. Um, we haven't heard 
from too many people as far as their questions or whatnot. Um, but we'll continue to have the channels open so that if anybody does have any questions for you or any comments whatsoever, um, they're free to share those. Um, I personally just have one last question as we wrap up here. Um, there's a video going around online from Sister Yasmin Harris. Um, she spent more than 17 years in prison in California, and she was speaking about how when she was imprisoned, she felt as though she was neglected by the Muslim community. Um, and it was a systematic effort in order to pull her away from Islam. So what obligations do we as Muslims have towards our brothers and sisters who are in prison? Well, you know, the first thing I want to do is I want to point out that um, historically, here in America, um, Islam appealed to people who were cast out, people who were considered to be socially dysfunctional, people who were uh, in the prisons, people who were in the ghettos and streets, uh, people who were socially disadvantaged. Historically, Islam has always, always appealed to them, and rightly so. Because Islam always has, Islam has always offered them the opportunity to reform themselves. And so we see the phenomena in America. We know that the prison uh, industry in America now, there's more people incarcerated in America than there are in any other country in the world. Uh, I have been told that in America, there are more than 3 million people incarcerated. I have also been told that it's possible that 15% of the people incarcerated in America are also Muslims. Now, if, if we take that, that guesstimate to be correct, 15% of uh, 3 million people means some 450,000 incarcerated Muslims. Now, these people could remain incarcerated. Uh, they could also remain entrenched in whatever brought them to jail. Or Islam could be a source of their reformation, which in the case of Sister Yasmin Harris, that it actually did. Now, if, in fact, there are 450,000 human beings who, regardless of the crime they committed against society or against individuals, that they reformed themselves they became Muslims, reformed their lives to be productive, uh, to be repentive, um, um, to be functional, and to come back into society after paying their debt, then we have an obligation to receive them. Secondly, while they're incarcerated, we have an obligation as Muslims to support them because there is a, there is a, there's something, a system in Islam called zakat. And, and part of the zakat system is to support people who are either enslaved or people who are in debt or people who are incarcerated. So those in debt, those are enslaved, those that are incarcerated, those that are incapacitated, they have a right to our zakat. Now, if there are 6 million Muslims in America, and let's just say that 20, let's just say that Half of the 6 million Muslims in America, 3 million of them, 
earn $30,000 a year, a year or more. That's a huge sum of money. This means that those Muslims who make that kind of money, they should be paying zakat every year. And if they have to pay zakat every year, they have no right to take that zakat money, to take that the tax money that they get and send it to their country or who they want. No, that zakat should be given to the uh, leader of the Muslims, the representative of the Muslims, and his body of administrative people. And then it should be divided in such a way that all the six or seven categories that have been um, uh, enumerated by the Quran itself, those six or seven categories of which incarcerated Muslims, incapacitated Muslims, Muslims in debt or Muslims that are, uh, uh, um, that Muslims that are enslaved, they have a right to that zakat. So that situation should not happen to Sister Yasmin. And it shouldn't happen to the other 450,000, uh, if that st statistics are correct, to people who are incarcerated. Every Muslim should have the feeling and the obligation and the commitment to support, even if it is only writing a letter. I mean, can we understand the impact that it would have upon an incarcerated person Muslim or otherwise, just to receive a letter that they would not receive maybe from their parents. Maybe they don't have any friends. Maybe they've been cut off from society for a number of reasons. What would it, the impact of a letter, how would that impact upon their lives? Secondly, if they were to receive once a month $20 so they don't have to beg from anybody, you know, because in the federal system, as the sister pointed out, in the federal system in the United States, uh, prisoners have a right to work in what's called prison industries. I mean, it's still exploitation, but they can work in prison industries and they can earn some money. But in the state system in which most of the Muslims who are incarcerated, they cannot work. So how do they get money? How do they remain dignified? How do they get money to just for their basic needs if they have no family? So as Muslims, what we could do individually, we could adopt a prisoner, regardless of what happened to them and why they went to jail. We could adopt a prisoner, write them a half a page, two, three or four chapters a month. Secondly, give them $10, give them $20. The cost, the cost of like a few meals in the course of a month that we, something that we waste in the course of a month, we could just send that to them and we would relieve them. So essentially, I want to say that um, it is very unethical and it is a shame that a Muslim lady came out of the jail and says that for 17 years she never got a letter, she never received any support. She knew that she was a Muslim who knew that she had adopted Islam to reform her life and that she has to get out of that prison and be in a a safe house or whatever the case might be, and still not received and still not stabilized by Muslims. That is a shame. And the fact that this um, that this applies to perhaps 450,000 other Muslims that are incarcerated, I think it is worthy for us to, um, to collaborate together, uh, do some research together, and find out how we can relieve ourselves uh, of this moral uh, responsibility. So um, we received um, a question from um, someone, I can't tell if it's a brother or a sister, 
Um, but I'm just going to read the, the question and pass it on to the Sheikh. Um, Salaamu Alaikum, you are a great man. Could you tell me about Muslims making haram money and feeding their families and, and building masjids with haram money and also uh, eating non-halal food? So that's um, somebody who wants to hear your uh, comment and perspective on that. Okay, um, my dear brother or dear sister, um, um, I think that the question is uh, set up with a number of assumptions. Um, and we should not answer questions based upon assumptions. We should answer questions that are based upon legitimate facts, uh, very clear, documented facts. Yes, are there Muslims who earn haram money and uh, give that money over to a mosque? Of course there are. But I don't think that um, it's my place to answer a presumption. I say that they are in the minority. And I don't say that there are many Muslims earning haram money and building masjids and schools with haram money. I think that that's an overstatement. Um, are there Muslims who commit crimes? Yes. But to say that many Muslims are doing that is wrong. Are there Muslims who, uh, who don't um, uh, separate money that they earned as haram into money that is halal? Yes, there are some, but I think that most Muslims, even if they are doing something haram, um, they are using some kind of discrimination to say, I can't give this money to the masjid. I, I can't build a school with this here. Why? Because what Muslim knows that God is the, uh, sees that. And how are you going to take something haram and do something which is halal and think you're going to get a reward from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? You're not going to get it. You know, you're, uh, uh, every Muslim knows that. So I think we should take a different presumption. That if a Muslim is doing something haram, they're also doing something halal. If they're earning money in a haram way, they're also earning money in a halal way. And that the good Muslim, the decent Muslim, the basic Muslim is only going to give from that which they earned halal. They're not going to make hajj from haram money. They're not going to build a masjid from haram money. And to say this as a presumption is to put a stain and a stigma upon many masjids and Islamic centers. And I don't think that's right to do. And so therefore, I'm not going to go along with that presumption. I'm just going to say that the Muslims who do that know that they're doing what's wrong. And um, of course, we should enjoy the right and forbid the wrong. But I don't think that we should make any kind of blanket assumptions that this is being done on a major uh, basis. Yeah, that was um, one question. And, and uh, also, uh, sister or brother, uh, thank you for your compliments. You know, Allah is great. Um, uh, if I've said something or done something uh, to be impressive or deserving of some compliment, I say, mashallah, tabarakallah. And I appreciate it so much to compliment. Um, and uh, But uh, let's all remain as, as humble uh, as we can with whatever contributions that we have made. Jazakumullah khairan Shaykh Khalid Yaseen for the opportunity of having you um, today. Um, Insha'Allah, the uh, live stream will be available on Shaykh Khalid Yaseen's official YouTube channel. Um, I'm reminding um, our brothers and sisters again who are watching us, we're trying to consolidate Shaykh Khalid Yaseen's online um, 
social media websites and YouTube and all of that. So please make sure that you are on the Sheikh's official pages. Uh, make sure that you subscribe to the YouTube channel. Um, any upcoming or any new uploads will be exclusively uploaded only on this one particular channel. Um, we know that Sheikh Khalid Yassin's productions from over 15 years um, ago are all over the internet. Um, and we're trying to bring all of that back to the Sheikh's uh, official YouTube channel. So please help us, inshallah, uh, and make sure that you let people in your network know. Um, I would like to take this opportunity before uh, concluding um, to thank our viewers. Um, and I do realize that we have less viewers uh, today than we had uh, on our Facebook Live um, yes, uh, last week. Uh, but that's because uh, we we have to integrate between YouTube and Facebook and Twitter. And so um, if some people were expecting us to be on Facebook Live, we will upload this to Facebook so you will get the opportunity to see that. Make your comments. We will be responding to your comments during the course of the week. And maybe next week we will be back on Facebook Live. I'm not sure. But give us the time. Just be patient with us until we can sort of consolidate our presence between Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. And we're asking you, please, like and share. Right now, you know, don't procrastinate. If you like what we have to say, share it with other people. You know, um, like you would food or a cup of tea. Or, you know, share it um, with more enthusiasm than you would bad news. Um, and uh, so like and share, that's one thing. Secondly, go to our You Caring um, page um, for Son of a Prince After X. Uh, we have a Facebook a fundraiser, and we also have a You Caring fundraiser for Son of a Prince After X. This is our, uh, this is our manuscript, which is under development, and our movie, which is under uh, discipline development. Uh, we're asking you, to support us because we cannot do a project like this here without your support. You know, it's not like somebody blessed us with uh, some money and people are just, you know, um, I'm noticing people saying, oh, Sheikh, you're doing a movie, that's great. When it's finished, send me a copy. Oh, Sheikh, you're doing a book, that is great. How can we get a copy? Brothers and sisters, come on. It doesn't rain like that. <laughs> you know, blessings, gold and silver doesn't come out of the sky. This is a major project. You know, it takes effort, collaborated effort. We have done some work over the last 50 years. We are doing some work now. But to put the pieces together, consolidate it, to cook it and package it and bring it to you as a completely finished product um, for our legacy and for the benefit of Muslims and non-Muslims around the world, we need your support. And support means... You can say, tak be Allahu Akbar. You can say, oh, Sheikh, you more sweeter than water. Oh, Sheikh, kudo for you, Sheikh. You know, you can say anything you want to say, and I appreciate all that. But guess what? You will not have food on the table if you don't go shop. And there would not be any food on the table if somebody didn't farm. So there needs to be people that plant, farm, harvest, people that take it to the stores, make it available, put it on the shelf, 
Then you go there, you buy it. After you buy it, you bring it home. After you bring it home, you cook it, prepare it, give it to your guests. We're asking you to help us to do the same thing, brothers and sisters. And you know, like um, Sheikh Ali Yassin, I don't know if some of you think somehow or another in 50 years, somehow or another, maybe I got 50 million or 5 million or 500,000 or 50,000. That's not the case. Brothers and sisters, uh, I'm a human being just like you. I'm 71 years old. I will be 72 in June. I have 13 children, 11 biological children and two that are not my biological, but they are like my children. I have 59, maybe 60, I'm told, grandchildren. So whether, whether I'm able to fulfill that tremendous responsibility or not, and my mother is a Muslim, you know, so just trying to fulfill my duties to my family, my children, my grandchildren, and all those things, it takes up a lot of my time and my resources. And at the end of the day, I've never been rich. Allah has blessed me to travel around the world. But no, I do not have a bank account with any significant amount of money in it to do this kind of a project. Let's make that point clear. Secondly, I don't have with me around me some multi-millionaires or people who just say, oh, shit, go do this here and we're going to give you the money. No, we have the idea. We have the commitment and we are engaged in doing that. But if 10,000 Muslims around the world who say their family, friends, supporters, homeboys, homegirls, whatever you want to call it, 10,000 Muslims gave us $100, gave us $10 or just a dollar, it would significantly help the project that we're working on. And we're not begging you. We're not begging. We are appealing to you to support this project as you support other projects, because at the end of the day, it's your project. It's, it's, it's part of my legacy, but it's the legacy of all the Muslim uh, today, all the Muslims who have died all the Muslims who have passed on, all the Muslims that are here, and all the Muslims who are in the belly of women right now. It's their legacy also, and we ask you to contribute to that. Um, so Son of a Prince, After X, uh, this is a book and a movie. We're hopeful that the movie and the book will be organized and ready for publication or launching by September 2018. This is our projection. Uh, if you will help us in any way you can. Of course, if you don't have money, well, write to us and tell us that you have some skills. If you don't have money, you don't have skills, but you really support, okay, make dua, and we accept your dua. But you know, on the market, dollar spends better than dua. You know, dua is for the akhirah, and we appreciate that, we need that. But in the market where they produce books, in the market where movies are produced, we need dollars, and that's a reality. So we thank you very much for um, tuning in to us and listening to our broadcast, whether, you, whether you're part of the live broadcast or whether you're listening to it archived. Again, please watch, listen, like, share. Go to skypurpose.com. Go to khalidyaseen.com and subscribe. And at the end of this talk, you will see a button that says subscribe Go right now and subscribe there because the more subscriptions that we have, the better it is for us to be able to monetize what we're doing. Um, I would ask Brother Abdullah if he has any further question or Sister Naima if they have any other question before we close out. 
do you have any other um i guess uh we could just like let people know that inshallah this will be an ongoing program and the sheikh has mentioned that in the previous episode um so if you have any questions for the sheikh um he gets hundreds of thousands of messages on his personal account he gets tons of uh, phone calls every single day um there's an overwhelming interaction that's happening with the sheikh's social media accounts all the time but we would like to remind you that this is your opportunity if you want to talk to him directly if you want your questions to be addressed and if you want to hear an answer from the sheikh please make sure to come and uh, tune in and watch the live broadcasts and the live interviews that we have so that while we're looking at your comments and while you're, we're looking at your questions, we can get um, the Sheikh to answer and respond to what you're saying. Thank you very much, Sheikh, for sitting down with us again today. We're looking forward to next week again, sitting down with, a, sitting down with you. Um, may Allah bless all of your efforts and may Allah bless the Muslims. I mean, uh, we ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, we want to thank Sister Naima and Brother Abdullah uh, for their diligence uh, being part of this project uh, and uh, uh, helping me to make this happen and consolidate these resources. We ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that he uh, bless you in your own endeavors and that he gives you the consistency and the resiliency uh, and the resilience to, uh, to be with us and to continue this, uh, this, this project as we are embarking upon it. And, uh, and again, to our viewers, um, whether they're family, whether they're friends, uh, whether they're supporters, uh, wherever you are in the world, uh, we thank you uh, for your uh, tuning in to us and for supporting us. We say, Subhanakallahum wa bihamdik, wa nashadu an la ilaha illa ant, wa nastaghfiruk wa natubu ilayk. Subhan rabbika rabbil izzati amma yasifun. Wassalamun ala al-Muslimin. Walhamdulillahi rabbil alameen. Ameen. Wassalamu alaykum wa rahmatullahi wa